I'm Catherine Amirfar. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law, Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. Welcome, everyone. This is Cal Raustiala, co-host of International Law Behind the Headlines, and I'm really happy to uh, welcome you back to the podcast and to sort of welcome onto the podcast someone who's a regular, uh, the president of the American Society of International Law and co-host of this podcast, Catherine Amirfar. So I'm actually going to interview Catherine today about uh, an issue that is on the agenda of climate change and uh, part of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. And we're gonna talk about the Conciliation Annex. Catherine, along with the co-author, Meryl Laurie White, recently published an ACL Insight, which some of you may have seen on this issue. And so I thought it made sense to bring Catherine on, talk a bit about what this means and where it's going. But before we jump in, I just wanted to note, this is our 30th uh, episode of the podcast, and uh, we're really happy to keep it going and, and hoping for many, many more. So Catherine, welcome. Welcome aboard. Thanks, Cal. I think it's it's kind of appropriate that on our anniversary, our 30th episode, that we're talking to each other on this podcast because it's been such a pleasure <laughs> doing this with you. Exactly, exactly. Well, first of all, maybe what you could do for listeners is just say a little bit about the structure of the Paris Agreement. I think we're going to assume many people know uh, that there is such an agreement about climate change, uh, but maybe say a word or two about its structure and why uh, there is this conciliation annex, which which is, you know, I think it's fair to say a bit of a departure from some of the past climate agreements. Um, but I'll let you fill in the meaning of this before we get into details. Sure. And I'm happy to start with where we are in the sense of the urgency in terms of action on climate change. Uh, and as you well know, Cal, the, there's the climate change conference of the parties, you know, colloquially known as COP, is coming up. It's coming up fast. This is the 26th. And as everyone refers to it, COP26 is coming up uh, between October 31st and November 12th. We really wrote the piece because we are in such a pivotal moment when it comes to collective country action to combat climate change. And I think all of the experts, the scientists concur that what we need now is decisive and transformative action. And in taking up the presidency of COP26, something that I replicate in the article because I think it's so important, the UK has been beating that drum that COP26 is the moment, has particular urgency. And the way they put it is that it's the world's last best chance to get runaway climate change under control. So why are we here? Uh, as you say, there's, of course, the foundational Paris Agreement uh, that was, was, uh, was executed and adopted in COP21 back in 2015 with 191 states parties. And it did something extraordinary. It committed those parties to keeping a global temperature rise this century well below two degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and even further to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And it set forth lots of obligations around mitigation, adaptation, and very, very importantly, how countries, how much countries should reduce their emissions, what are called the nationally determined contributions, and 
update every five years those plans on those reductions and that would reflect the highest possible ambition. And, and that is what is extraordinary, not just in the sense of reaching agreement among 191 nations, which is you know, in and of itself, obviously an achievement, but in thinking about what the mechanism is for combating climate change, it's to be constantly ambitious in terms of the emissions reduction pledges. This is called the ratchet mechanism of the Paris Agreement. And this COP26 in just a few short weeks will be the first test of that. It will also be a test of scaling up things like climate finance, making it more accessible to developing countries. That's gonna be high on the agenda. High on the agenda will be how to adapt to the impacts of climate change and very importantly, how you finance that adaptation and what it means to adapt. And there's of course, so much about what's called the Paris Agreement Implementation Guidelines or rule book that include finalizing the rules on carbon markets, the enhanced transparency framework uh, on which countries report on their actions, and something called the global stock take, which I love. And that is the assessment of collective progress towards the globe goals. And why all of this? Why so ambitious? It's because Scientists agree, and we have very recently the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that this target of 1.5 and 2 will be exceeded during the 21st century unless there are deep reductions in CO2 and other greenhouse gas emissions. And so this is the moment, and this is where we are on the eve of COP26. I think that's a really great overview. And I think the only thing I would add to, to I think what's very uh, what was just very well presented by you about what Paris means is if you take the long view going back almost 30 years at this point uh, about climate efforts at the global level, one of the interesting debates has always been, do we need targets and timetables uh, legally binding in some way decided collectively uh, or as we see in Paris, uh, you rightly pointed out the kind of key feature is this notion of nationally determined contributions where the member states themselves determine what they want to do, what their goal and aim is. But then there's a pretty rigorous process of review and that global stock take both collective, but then also uh, kind of at a more individual level, reviewing and seeing where we are and that, I think, is a different and, I hope, more successful mechanism than the ones we've seen in the past. Um, you're also absolutely right to point out how incredibly urgent the issue is. I'm sitting here in California, um, where I think we felt this issue through fires and drought in a very extreme way. But all over this country, and in fact, all over the world, people are seeing the impact of climate change increasingly, and I think beginning to recognize that uh, this is not some future problem, it's a current problem. So, so with that in mind, I think this is, a, as you say, a very urgent and timely uh, kind of question. So let's turn to the conciliation process, which is new, uh, and maybe just explain what its function is and then what your, uh, your assessment and proposal is with regard to it. Sure. You know, you say it's new, but it's actually old. It's old, but new, old, but never acted upon. And I, I think really the point of, of the article was to talk about dispute resolution in the context of climate change. And 
myself and my practice, you know, look at disputes in lots of different contexts and climate change is not unusual. We see it cropping up in investment arbitrations. We see it cropping up in WTO decisions. We see it all over the place. Why? Because it's a global issue that manifests in lots of different ways. So dispute resolution and climate change really should be considered together as a means of making sure that the community of nations actually achieves on its goals. So why do I say it's old? It's old because the dispute resolution provision draws on the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. That's the UNFCCC. What the Paris Agreement did is it took that dispute resolution procedure, which was Article 14 of the UNFCCC, and just adopted it as Article 24 of the Paris Agreement. So if there's any dispute concerning the interpretation and application of the Paris Agreement, it is subject to the options that are contained in Article 14 of the UNFCCC. And that's how it gets brought into the conversation. Now, what that provides for is negotiation, which is typical for these kinds of clauses. And then you have basically two options. If not settled within 12 months, it's submission to conciliation at the request of any of the parties to the dispute, or by consent of the parties, recourse to either the ICJ or arbitration. Now, what's interesting about this is since the Paris Agreement, and in fact, since the UNFCCC, only a handful of states have made declarations under Article 14. By my count, it was only three. And that meant a consent to submit disputes to the ICJ or arbitration. So what we have here is a mechanism, the conciliation mechanism. There was some thought to actually taking that conciliation and adopting procedures to be adopted in what's called an annex on conciliation. But that was never done. That was never done after the UNFCCC. It was never done after the Paris Agreement. So one question that, that we raise is, is it time? Yes, there are lots of critical goals that are part of this upcoming COP26, but something that maybe should take center stage is this conciliation mechanism because states have not yet acted on creating this annex on conciliation, which could be used for disputes, climate change related disputes arising under the Paris Agreement going forward. Can you give an example or maybe a few examples of the kind of disputes you might envision making use of this procedure? I think the, the, the way that these disputes can manifest are, are really myriad. I'm not trying to dodge your question, Cal. It's a really good question. Um, but I'll give you one example of the way that it can come up. And that is in terms of perhaps there's some tension in terms of bearing the cost on a particular adaptation measure. Perhaps there's tension in the context of a transboundary harm scenario as to whether one state's or one country's NDC is sufficiently protective of the environment of another country. Really, when you think about the Paris Agreement and the full texture of the obligations, both procedural and substantive, the disputes around that could, be, could really manifest in lots of different ways. So I, I think that part of it is we're starting to see some of the disputes now but even more importantly, as we get more ambitious, as this ratchet mechanism of the Paris Agreement and these various agenda items get highest priority in countries, 
you're going to need a mechanism to resolve the disputes. And frankly, the typical adversarial dispute process where you go in and make your case in front of a, a, a judicial tribunal may not be the best way to get to a solution in the context of climate change. I think there was a very particular decision by the state parties uh, in the context of the UNFCCC to speak to conciliation commissions as the default mechanism in Article 14. And it has just not been taken up by states uh, as, as Article 24 of the Paris Agreement. So I, I think that's, that's the key is lots of different kinds of disputes, shapes and sizes coming up on the Paris Agreement and already existing as a matter of fact. Conciliation should be a tool that is available to countries to take this forward. Great, great. So that kind of tees up the next set of issues I have or questions, uh, which is really just defining a little more what conciliation means and how it relates to arbitration. You talked about courts and the ICJ as well. So maybe just defining it for listeners and then what what are the advantages, disadvantages? What are the reasons we might want to use this versus another procedure? You're really an expert on dispute settlement. And so it would be great to kind of put this in context a little bit in the larger frame of how we deal with state-to-state disputes. Sure, absolutely. I think um, there's lots of different shades of conciliation, lots of different forms. The hallmark of conciliation is frankly flexibility. But if we talk about it, generally speaking, it's a non-binding form of -of out-of-court settlement. And that can obviously change. The parties can agree that the outcome will be binding. But generally speaking, it's a non-binding form of -of out-of-court settlement. And why is flexibility important? It's because what the conciliation model provides is the ability for the parties to decide through the mechanism of various aspects of procedure. And we can talk about what some examples there. But through the mechanism of the aspects of the procedure, does it look closer to a purely diplomatic engagement that is all about non-binding negotiations? Or is it more closely resemble judicial proceedings that are tend to be binding? Or is it a hybrid where some aspects are binding, such as fact-finding, but the political recommendations that come from those facts are non-binding? So it is a very much a creature of extraordinary flexibility. And in some instances, you actually see a lot of criticism on that basis, where there are certainly examples of conciliations that go through years and resource investment and costs only to find at the end of the day that there's not the political will to take it forward. And it was non-binding to begin with. So time lost, resources lost. Certainly that is a risk, but frankly, it's a risk in any negotiation process. And what conciliation gives parties the ability to do is to organize that process in a way that makes sense, specifically tailored to climate change disputes, which have very particular technical aspects to them, and to structure it to maximize the likelihood of coming to an agreement to a solution that is both legally and politically expedient in terms of getting to the ultimate goal. So it is very much flexible and I think can be tailored by the parties, but that's the hallmark of it. It's a non-binding form of -of out-of-court settlement. Would you say that it is a more diplomatic than legal process 
or is it in fact a legal process, but simply a non-binding one? How would you kind of characterize it in that? I'm thinking of just to back up for a second, uh, it, as you know, in the history of let's say trade disputes, if you look at the GATT system early on, there was a highly, what was typically characterized as diplomatic process, eventually legalized in something that really is effectively a court. And now we maybe are heading backwards. Here, I see some similarities. And so I'm just curious how you would characterize this on that kind of scale of diplomacy versus law. It's a really good question. And I've actually seen um, a, a large diversity in terms of conciliation mechanisms. Some feel far more judicial, and by that I mean have more binding elements to them. And others are very much non-binding set of recommendations that have the more of the feel of the diplomatic. And I think, frankly, depending on the dispute, one form is better over the other. And, and there's lots of examples of these kind of hybrid mechanisms. If you look at the, the TMRC conciliation process, uh, which had a compulsory conciliation commission, and that had both elements of binding and non-binding baked in, if you will, into that dispute. You have the, um, the example of the conciliation process that's contemplated by the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, which is a, a process which uh, on behalf of a, a country we submitted one of the first ever interstate conciliation applications. And that process is again, very much non-binding but there is a prescribed process where the, the views of that commission are circulated to state parties. So I guess what I'm saying is conciliation can take lots of different forms. And the beauty of it is that as long as you outline, I think some basic rules of the road, which is what this conciliation annex contemplated that countries would do. Once you've laid that out, parties are free to within that construct create whether it's a completely binding judicial or a completely non-binding, more of a mediation conciliation quality to it, you can basically pick and choose elements to create the right mechanism to resolve the dispute. So I think when it comes to, for example, very experienced negotiators, they realize that sometimes the thing that matters most is the procedure. The thing that matters most is to whether you can resolve a dispute are the trappings of procedure that you put around it. And I think that's what's missing on the agenda of the COP26 that's coming up is when you're talking about dispute resolution and the Paris Agreement, why not spell out the rules of the road as anticipated in the conciliation annex? And that should be a high priority item. Catherine, do you think that the flexible nature of conciliation that you just described is a particularly good fit with the Paris Agreement because Paris itself substantively is such a flexible agreement from the nationally determined contributions kind of on down. It was designed to give the member states, the parties more flexibility to reach a shared goal. Uh, and so does it make sense then to also have flexibility in dispute settlement or are those two features uh, severable or distinct in your eyes? I think that's a really good question. I think it's it's an astute observation. I, I can I think that the fact that the Paris Agreement embeds in it 
flexibility as a mechanism for compliance by countries in the form of these NDCs, in the form of the ratcheting up mechanism uh, that I mentioned, translates into a kind of dispute resolution process that is equally flexible. So I think one informs the other. And here, and this is in, of course, in the context of the UNFCCC, but the state parties to the Paris Agreement decided to adopt it wholesale. For example, that provision says that the commission shall render a recommendatory award, which is the term that's used, which the party shall consider in good faith. Now, that recommendatory award isn't necessarily binding. It can be non-binding because of the nature of conciliation. And then the article says that additional procedures relating to conciliation shall be adopted by the conference of the parties. And I just think that reflects what you, the point you just made, which is flexibility is the name of the game, but the challenge of flexibility, including as manifest in the Paris Agreement, is you also need accountability. You need a mechanism where the state parties, for example, aren't being ambitious enough to get to a common goal. And then there's a dispute that arises under the Paris Agreement as a result, a mechanism to resolve that dispute. And that mechanism is flexible, just as the substantive um, requirements of Paris is flexible. So I think there is a connection there. Do you anticipate that the conciliators who are chosen would be or should be lawyers? Or do you think it makes more sense? Or do you imagine there'll be maybe even scientists or other kinds of policy specialists or something like that? It's a really good question. I, I think one of the great challenges of climate change disputes is that it sits on the intersection of so many different fields of ex expertise. So you have the legal, you have the technical, you have the scientific, and within each of those, you have the niche experts on adaptation mechanisms. You have the niche experts on carbon capture. You have the niche experts on these, um, these regional carbon uh, reduction regimes. So it, it, conciliation, I think, allows for the participation of individuals as it makes sense to resolve the dispute without having to worry about, as you would obviously in the context of a judicial proceeding, that you need to have legal advocates making arguments. And equally, on, in conciliation mechanisms, you can actually take advantage of various ways that experts can assist commissioners in coming to solutions. So for example, you need an adaptation uh, expert to deal with a dispute between two countries that expert can come in, not necessarily as an advocate, but as a neutral assist, assistance to the tribunal. So through the expert mechanism, an independent expert mechanism. I think that, again, it comes down to flexibility where we don't get hung up on roles of these are what the lawyers do, these are what the scientists do, but actually merge, which is exactly what we need to do to get climate change action that is both decisive and transformative. Well, I think that's a really great uh, place to end. And I think your points are really well taken about that. And we're at a very crucial moment. Again, the COP will begin, I think, on Halloween uh, in Scotland. Uh, and this will be the 26th. There'll be more to come. Uh, but hopefully your, your points about this will be taken up. So, Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, Kat. Always a pleasure.